are back for yet another week of Behind the Lens. Uh, 2018 is just zipping by. Uh, Here we are already, September 17th. A busy, busy day in the entertainment world. Emmy Awards are tonight. And then this week, L.A. Film Festival starts it uh, on Thursday. Another big event uh, in the film world. It is a qualifying festival for Oscar consideration, uh, among other fun things. So welcome to Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where every week we go behind the lens and below the line and bring you directors, writers, producers, cinematographers, sound designers, costumers, uh, actors, singers, composers, uh, and figure out and fill you in on how all of these films today are being and TV shows are being made. You can find me, my interviews and reviews in print and online 24 7 uh, in the US and abroad. And of course, every Monday, right here on adrenalineradio.com, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And today, very exciting. I'm very thrilled with our guests today. I'm always thrilled with our guests, but we have two really incredible people today. Uh, first one who's, who we'll have joining us at about the quarter hour mark is Leon Lee, Peabody Award winner uh, for the incredible 2014 documentary Human Harvest. Uh, Leon has a new documentary out called Letter from Masanja, uh, based on a letter that a labor camp prisoner in China attached on the back of a an inexpensive Halloween decoration that somebody bought in a Kmart in Oregon. And it set off a whole chain of events, some of which helped prompt a change in China's labor camp laws. So we're going to have Leon joining us. And then at the half hour mark, Namrata Singh Gujral is with us to talk about her latest film, Five Weddings. This woman does it all. She's an actor. She's a director. She's a writer. She is a cancer survivor and cancer advocate. She melds Bollywood and Hollywood. And I've got to tell you, Five Weddings, it is a kaleidoscope of color. It is fabulous to see. Uh, So I can't wait to talk to Namrata about her film as well. And she touches on a lot of cultural, societal issues and mores uh, in the film that uh, I want to explore with her. But also, in keeping with this kind of theme, social justice, exploration, cultural mores, first I want you to hear part of my exclusive interview with writer-director Ama Asante, whose new film is out now, Where Hands Touch, starring Amanda Stenberg, who you know best as Rue in The Hunger Games, George McKay, who... I think George really has potential to turn into a great leading man uh, later on in his life. He Right now, he is magnetic on screen. He's been in Pride, How I Live Now, Captain Fantastic, uh, Abby Cornish, and Christopher Eccleston. And this story is set in 1947 Germany. And it deals with what the people that became known as Rhineland Bastards I grew up knowing this term only because of relatives uh, from Germany that would come and visit uh, my grandparents. 
And that was the term that was given by Hitler and the, the Nazi regime to mixed blood individuals, uh, typically African-American and white. And this is a story that takes a look at that and comparison how people and Amanda, Amanda Stenberg plays the character of Lena and she is considered a Rhineland bastard. And we see the persecution and the torture and the discrimination that she has put through. George McKay plays a young, loyal German youth named Lutz who falls in love with her. And the film really explores a lot of the societal issues of 1947, which sadly we also see unfolding still today in 2018. The film is timely. It is topical. Um, and it is it bodes some brilliant performances and excellent work by Ama. So take a listen as she and I talked about the themes in the film and the visual development. I have to say, I was fascinated with this film, Where Hands Touch. I wasn't okay. sure what to expect. And to see the way that you use this relationship to delve into a truly mm -hmm. human story about race, identity, gender, human suffering, I think is mm -hmm. magnificent. Oh, thank you so much. I hugely appreciate that. So I had all grown up hearing about the Rhineland Bastards. Oh, goodness. You're the first person that said that to me. To see the, and I didn't know that was the direction you were even going to bring that into the film. So to see this unfold, Amma, I think mm -hmm. you did a brilliant, brilliant job of telling this story and shining a light on just yet another example of discriminatory and hateful practices in the history of the world. Right, and but also. Um um, the idea of um, young developing minds mm -hmm. being molded into um, adult minds that could um, that could express hatred and could action murder, um, because you know so often we have this idea that you know monsters are born, and I do believe sometimes they are. Mm -hmm. I do believe that, but I think for the most part. We're talking about a, um, a nurture aspect. And I really wanted to look at the nurture aspect of um, what it was to um, mandatorily have to be in the Hitler Youth. Um, what, what happens when every, every area of culture that might teach you differently has been removed? Mm -hmm. So teachers are gone. You know, teachers who might speak against the National Socialist regime are gone. Books are gone. Um, you know, you, kids do not belong to their parents. They belong to the state. Yep. And were actively encouraged to report their parents if their parents spoke to them in any way other than one that was um, supportive of National Socialism. You know, what does that do? And, you know, those are formal structures, formal structures of, um, you know, moulding young minds into hatred, and I kind of wonder what informal structures we have today to kind of um, normalize the abnormal, mm -hmm. you know, because it starts with language, you know, it starts with language, and um, 
we make it okay to dehumanize someone through the language that we use, and then when we dehumanize them, it's easier to inflict other, um, uh, you know, persecution on them. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, you really, and this is the perfect time for this film as well, Anna, the contemporary relevance of this film is, it's unfathomable how contemporary it is so. even today. And I think so. I think so. I think so. I, I think that, you know, so often we talk about the warnings of the past, but we don't really listen. Yeah. You know, we don't really listen. And I, I, and I think for me, this was an important way to bring that, that newer generation, that younger generation, into this story. Because I think sometimes social stories can be... You know, the kind of movies that your parents go to watch, you know, right. and and just don't feel like it's for them. And and that's why Amanda and George being these young, you know, these young minds in this story, uh, you know, through them, I hope we can speak to the younger generation. Well, and that's that's truly what I mean, your en your entry point into this story with them, with a love story, which as you're watching the the, the chemistry between the two of them. You're totally colorblind mm -hmm. when you watch the two of them because their chemistry is so genuine. It is so real. And you forget their differences when those beautiful, beautiful scenes you have out overlooking the lake. And you couldn't have done any better than yeah. Remy. Remy is a cinematographer on this one. is perfect. Yeah. But you have yeah, the beauty absolutely. and you have sun filtering and you have the green trees and the the metaphoric cleansing of of both of them when they jump into the lake. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's just mm -hmm. glorious, and you totally forget all the, any potential differences. And you show us yeah. what um, the world can be like. Right, right. And, 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 and that element of hope, that it doesn't have to be this way. These are choices we make, mm -hmm. right? Yep. We make the choices to take the world in the, the negative directions that we take it in because, you know, I do believe that human beings, for the most part, are born to connect, not yeah. disconnect. Oh, absolutely. And, um, we forget that with all the other stuff um, that kind of comes in and complicates things because of power, and, um, because we don't want to power share, and sometimes because of fear. Well, and I mean, I just think that you crafted the script so well and develop these characters, and especially Abby and Christopher's character as Elena's mother and as Lutz's dad, you really yeah. and you really set up the generational differences as well, where you have the youth that are struggling against their, what their parents are telling them, so they are trying to right. think for themselves. And you did a beautiful, yeah. beautiful job of that. And I really think it will resonate with a younger audience and open their minds and their eyes. I, I, want, I wanted with the two families to kind of be distorted mirror images of each other. Mm -hmm. So they're both single, single parent families. You know, she's been raised by her mother with an absent father. He's been raised by his father with an absent mother. And what you see are these two parents who in different ways um, rightly and wrongly, are trying to see their children through the war with ten fingers and ten toes and a brain attack. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and and what they're both looking for is the same thing, but they're on different sides of that that device, seemingly seemingly different sides. Mm -hmm. 
And so I love the fact that, and we don't see this, and I don't recall ever seeing this in a period drama such as this, where you have a single parent father raising a son. Yeah. That's a very yeah, unique. Really important to me. That's very unique. And anybody that, that has ever grown up in a German family, <laughs> you know the importance of that father son relationship. Yeah. And what yeah. it entails. Yeah. And that really adds another whole structure, structural element to the story. I'm curious, Alma, how did you right. go about designing and approaching this visually so that, as I said, such as, you know, the beautiful lake scene and the forest scenes, which contrast, you have a yeah. definite visual tonal bandwidth here, a distinct design. So I'm curious how you went about planning the visuals of the film and yeah. working with Remy. Yeah, well, um, I knew that, you know, the second half of the film was going to be very, very dark um, emotionally. Um, I, and, and tonally, I knew that it was going to be dark. And I knew that, you know, in order to really get the messages across for this film, I had to keep the audience in their seat. Like, I had to, you know, I couldn't make it so terribly depressing that they wanted to leave after the first 10 minutes of this movie. Um, I also wanted to capture an innocence. Um, I wanted to visually represent an innocence on screen. Um, and when I went to, when I visited Yad Vashem, in Israel, and when I visited uh, the slavery museums in London, uh, sorry, in Liverpool, what they each of them did was they showed you what life was like before for the people that were persecuted. And so I wanted to capture these pockets of life for mm-hmm. the two kids that kind of looked like what life must have been like in Germany before. Because Germany is beautiful. Yeah. I mean, it has beautiful. And that is part of an excerpt of our exclusive interview with Ama Asante. If we have time later in the show, you'll hear the end of our discussion on cinematography and creating that look. Otherwise, everything will be out later this week uh, in various places, including BehindTheLensOnline.net. But right now, I want to welcome to the show Leon Lee. Leon, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This, you have done it again. Um, I became a huge admirer of your work with Human Harvest when I saw that several years ago. And now, Letter from Masanja is just, it's an unbelievable story to begin with. Um, And who would ever think that you'd buy a Halloween decoration, a gravestone of all things, um, that's a, with an R.I.P. rest in peace on it, and there is a note from a prisoner in a Chinese labor camp attached to the back of it. That you, as a filmmaker, when you read about that in the media after the note was discovered, that had to have just set set the the bells and whistles going off for you. Absolutely, uh, as someone's been following uh, human rights issues for a while. The name Masanja immediately stood out for me because Masanja labor camp is one of the most notorious labor camps in China, known for its harsh treatment uh, towards the detainees. To survive Masanja is already a miracle. Uh, 
Um, how could anyone manage to find a pen and paper and uh, write letters and actually hide them in the Halloween decorations? Mm-hmm. So that's why uh, I immediately wanted to look into it. Now, because of the fact you have you you have the, our prisoner um, as soon as he is in prison, uh, you have an American citizen in Oregon who has found this note. You know, how do you how did you start and approach this in order to put together a documentary? Because at the same time, you can't go into China. Right. <laughs> I immediately contacted Julie Keith, and she was so helpful. I interviewed her several times over the years. Uh, then the challenge really was to track down the letter writer. Mm-hmm. Um, because of Human Harvest and a couple of other films I did, I developed an underground network of dissidents and journalists within China. So I, I put the word out. And uh, all in all, it took three years. Uh, that one day somebody told me, I think I got your guy. And uh, we had this initial uh, conversation on Skype. It turned out he had also seen my previous work. So he trusted me with his story. And uh, as you mentioned, I couldn't go back to China. Uh, and Sun Yi, uh, the letter writer, on the other hand, did not know how to use a camera. So <laughs> we too have to uh, pull this off, uh, mainly over Skype. Oh, my gosh. You know, did he have any kind of... He's already been in this horrific labor camp. Did he have any kind of fear, trepidation about participating in making a documentary about his story? Oh, yes. And that's why he was uh, he was in hiding, uh, mostly after he was released from Masanjia. He, kept, uh, he never stopped his work in uh, telling people about the persecution, but he, he kept a, a rather low uh, profile. Um, and, and when we first contacted, I also had concerns about his safety. Uh, but in the end, he basically said something like, look, this is no, uh, no more dangerous than what I'm already doing now, uh, whether I am bringing uh, flyers and brochures in the ground press or training other people to do so. Uh, this is really no different from trying to make a film. And he endured all that to tell his story. He felt this was the opportunity to really tell his story and, and be, be heard worldwide. Mm-hmm. And, of course, this story did help initiate massive changes to the Chinese labor camps. Indeed. Um, when... Julie's story became international headlines. Uh, there was a magazine uh, called Lens in China, also published a detailed expose of the tortures in Masanjia labor camp four months later. Although the magazine was quickly uh, censored, um, there was an enormous uh, outcry from the Chinese public and from international society. So uh, China uh, eventually abolished uh, the decades-old re-education through labor systems. Mm-hmm. And over 160,000 detainees were freed as a result. Wow. Wow. So I'm curious how you and Sun Yi went about, since he didn't know how to work a camera, 
obviously he's either going to be watching a lot of YouTube or you're going to be demonstrating a lot for him over Skype. How was this process? Because also with him in hiding and doing interviews or filming things, you know, how cautious did he have to be if people saw him with a camera in his hand? Right. Um, I provided a list of gears that he needed to acquire, and then we scheduled training sessions. I, I starting from the basics. Um, I, I had ambitious plans, <laughs> but in the end, uh, all my advice is into one sentence, which is "Don't get caught." <laughs> and it, it turned out the old trusted iPhone became our best friend. Mm -hmm. uh, he can pretend to be, to be taking a, a, a phone call or just uh, snapping a picture. Um, so you, you can take out an iPhone anywhere without raising a suspicion. Mm -hmm. And uh, really, the uh, he would um, press the footage, uh, encrypt it, and send to me online. Mm -hmm. I would review, we would discuss, and once in a while, he would... Uh, copy all the raw footage into a hard drive, obviously we, we can FedEx it. So again, I relied on my network to pass it, pass the drive to me. Um, sometimes it was one month, sometimes it took two months. Mm -hmm. Once I had the hard drive, I will then ask for the password from Sun Yi. Mm -hmm. And I had one opportunity to unlock the drive. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, uh, we would never be able to have the footage. So that, that's how it worked out. You know, now, I'm obviously, because you didn't know what kind of footage he would be getting, and because of the length of time before you were actually physically getting it, did that give you time to develop your storyline, your through line here, or did you have that mapped out when you embarked on this? Uh, I was able to see the footage uh, much, much sooner mm -hmm. because he would... Uh, compress it, encrypt it, and send to me, and the low-resolution version to me first. Mm -hmm. uh, so we were able to uh, plan accordingly. Uh, in terms of the overall structure of the story, I was uh, hoping that because Julie Keith is the one who discovers the letter in Oregon, um, I knew that he most likely she would be our gateway to, to the viewers in the West. So her discovering the letter probably will end up uh, in the beginning of the film. Uh, but once things, you know, set off, there were so many things happened that there was no way to plan, mm -hmm. and we have to adjust accordingly. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so in the end, I think it's really Sunyi taking us um, on this journey, so we actually see uh, by ourselves the daily realities mm -hmm. faced by human rights defenders in China, not only on his work but also the terrible toll that uh, it took on, on the family. Oh, his, his wife, the, the interviews with his wife are heartbreaking. I mean, absolutely heartbreaking. And then when he talks about, you know, being away from her and how she then wanted to sever all contact, it's like the pain on his face is palpable. Um, you know, I can't imagine what he felt like going through all of this and, to have this continue, it, it's bad enough you're in the, the labor camp, but then to still have your life not be your own afterwards, I just, it's very chilling, and it's very humbling and sombering when you watch this. 
And I really commend you for the way you have structured and put this together. Um, so it is very, very affecting for a Western audience, actually for any audience. Thank you. It, it's certainly a remarkable story and an and, uh, incredible uh, human being. Sun Yi, his spirit, his strength, um, it is really inspiring for me. This, the, the most difficult film I've made so far, mm -hmm. but also the most inspiring one uh, to me personally. Mm -hmm. You know, something that you did that I, I just absolutely love in the documentary are the graphic novel animated illustrations that of Sun Yi's time in the work camp. Um, you know, you put that together a whole, I mean, it's just, number one, it lightens the mood. Even though it's all in black and white and grays, it lightens the mood um, because it is animated. But it really helps convey what he was, you know, what he was doing, what the daily life was like. Um, but it's done through the animation. You know, when did you arrive at, the, when did you come up with the idea to incorporate that? I had always struggled to find a way to recreate his experiences back in Masenjia labor camp. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think one day, Sun Yi casually mentioned he had uh, uh, made some sketches before. And uh, once I saw it, I was amazed by it. Um, it turned out Sun Yi had been a big uh, fan of traditional Chinese graphic novels. He was a little boy, and he often practiced drawing uh, on the margin. So later, he became an engineer, he learned drafting, and uh, right then, uh, we thought it would be a fantastic idea to do some animation, uh, as you mentioned, graphic novel-style animation, based on his uh, sketches. Mm -hmm. So that all, uh, the level of authenticity um, to come across, but also, as, uh, as, as you uh, mentioned, makes the torture sequence a little easier to see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can't imagine if you had tried to recreate that. Um, but the way you've done it, it's very tastefully done. Um, and while still really conveying the horrors of what Sunni and others uh, had to endure in Masanja. You know, what something that you also address in here, because it is such a big part of who Sun Yi is, is the Falun Gong, um, the spiritual practice, um, and the Chinese just persecute everyone that follows that. And I'm very, I, I found that quite striking. I had no clue the depth and similarly the passion that Sun Yi has for those teaching and to actually see him go through the meditation and the guagang exercises was really in, it's something very, very spiritual to watch. Yes. Um, I, I'm no expert on, on following Rome, but I've met enough of practitioners to know what's really going on. Uh, long story short, I think, uh, Falun Gong is a, a spiritual practice uh, based in ancient uh, Chinese teachings, and it was introduced to the public in 1992, uh, and it, it, it was so popular um, because of its, its principles of truthfulness, compassion, and tolerance, uh, 
and its uh, uh, health benefits. So it's, it's almost, I think it's very similar to Tai Chi or Yoga, mm-hmm. uh, but the, the followers strive to live their daily lives based on the principles. Mm-hmm. Because it's so popular, by 1999, uh, there were over 70 million to 100 million people practicing Kung wow. in China. And it outnumbered membership of the Chinese Communist Party. On, on top of that, the Chinese regime is an atheism uh, regime. Mm-hmm. So since it took power in 1949, it systematically destroyed all spiritual faiths and, and religions. Mm-hmm. And even lately, I was told that China banned all previous translations of the Bible, and you can only buy one, one version that's translated by the government. I, I haven't checked it out, but I assume the translation is very different. I see a documentary in there, Leon. I see a documentary in there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. So I think I think that that's why uh, in 1999, President Jiang Zemin, against uh, many senior officials within the party, uh, decided to launch the crackdown, mm-hmm. and he ordered the Falun Gong to be eradicated within three months. Wow. But because of people like Sun Yi who resisted. Uh, the persecution, I think, they, they did not get rid of Falun Gong, and the persecution continued until uh, today. You know, and, I mean, the whole thing, it speaks to the very th- the very events that are happening in the world today that are happening in the United States. You know, truthfulness, compassion, and tolerance is, uh, you know, it seems to be a constant battle, no matter what continent we are on or what situation we're in. But what you've done here, bringing Sunni's story to light, Leon, it is absolutely magnificent, and uh, I think it, it truly, truly something everybody needs to see. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's, uh, my, my biggest hope is to make sure Sunni's sacrifices not, not go, in, go in vain, and people had an opportunity to, to know him and uh, uh, learn about her, his story. Well, and now it's in the the documentary is in theaters right now. It opened. Yes, yes. Uh, we opened. Yes, I think you opened what in Los Angeles on Friday. I don't know how many other cities. Um, uh, Los Angeles and New York City, and, and hoping it would expand. I think it would expand to other places uh, in the following weeks. Well, everybody that gets a chance to see it needs to see it. And, uh, Leon, unfortunately, we're out of time. Um, God, I could talk to you forever about your documentaries because I I am such an admirer of your passion and the messaging that you bring to the world with them. Um, And this one is truly, it is one of my documentary picks of the year, hands down. Um, And especially, especially in these times, Leon. Leon, thank you so much. I hope you'll come back on the show again and we can talk more about your about your work. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Leon. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. And that was Leon Lee, letter from Masanja in theaters now. And now we go from China and Jakarta to India with, <laughs> with five weddings <laughs> And the wonderful... Hi, Debbie. Hi, Namrata. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you for asking. Oh, 
I am so excited to have you on the show to talk about Five Weddings. This film is so much fun. Um, it's but it's not just fun; it's educational, it's entertaining, and your two lead actors have a chemistry that is off the charts. I mean, this is the stuff that movies are made of. Thank you so much. So, yes, and and you know, it's interesting that you say that because um, um, it's it's a challenge to make a film that really sort of you hope would make a difference in the world, but also keep it entertaining and fun because ultimately people watch movies. You know, it, it is the entertainment business. So I think with the film, I think we, we somehow managed to squeeze in both of those. It's got some very important angles to it, but the film is, we just played in Washington, D.C. at a North America premiere, and people were just laughing, like pulling on the ground. So, Well, you know, and most of the laughter in this film comes from Ravi Aneja, I mean, as Donald. He is hilarious. <laughs> Every time he is on screen, I could not stop laughing. I... <laughs> You've got a scene where he where he tapes American flags on the dashboard in the police car <laughs> to show the American journalist how American he already is. And he's tried nine <laughs> times to come to America. And I was roaring. I mean, just roaring. Yeah. I, it, yeah. I mean, just moments. And it just and that serves the film so well, because here you are. You have a story of a woman named Shania who. Wants a job as a magazine, as a editor in chief of this ma- online magazine. She gets sent to India. She's got to come up with a story. The story is you're going to cover Indian weddings. Um, right. Simple enough until you realize that there are at least 15 different kinds of Indian weddings. You have to, <laughs> you have to narrow them down. Uh, and then you have to go traveling around and you encounter culture shock that she adversely affects in some instances and conversely positively affects. Um, Sure. Sure. You find this amazing, amazing balance here with showing us all these five kinds of weddings. So I am curious how you managed to pick the five that you picked since you had so many to pick (laughs) from. Um, And then, and go ahead. That scene, a Debbie, between uh, Candy Clark and um, Nargis is one of my favorite scenes in the film where she says, well, just do it. just cover 12. And she goes, a handful. And she goes, okay, well, can I just cover eight? And she's like, no, five. All right, five weddings. <laughs> so um, um, my family, Debbie, is actually from India. Mm-hmm. And so it is true that we, we have um, many, many ceremonies at Indian weddings. It's like a, it's like a two-week affair. So ultimately, because uh, it, it's a movie can be 90 minutes, we mm-hmm. picked five. So we picked the five top ceremonies at an Indian wedding, which would happen pretty much all over India because India is so diverse. Right. But these five ceremonies would happen all over India. And so those are the five that we picked. And so five weddings is actually five different ceremonies at five different weddings that she covers. And I mean, I think you've got Mendy, you've got Sanjeet, you've got Anand Karaj, you've got Chuni, and then you have the reception ceremony, which was I loved in the film. How do you say reception ceremony 
<laughs> in India. Reception ceremony. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, right. you incorporate all these fun things. We actually get to see some of these practices for each of these weddings. Um, one of the great standouts are your costumes um, and the garb that everybody wear. The wedding garb for all of these weddings. I mean, just it's eye popping to watch this film. Yeah. But then while we have all this joy going on, obviously we have a love story going on between our wonderful journalist and the police officer assigned to escort her. Um, Mm -hmm. But you address these darker issues of the Hejira, the transgenders who, uh, the dancers who give blessings at weddings and it's centuries old and it wasn't until recently that they were even recognized as citizens. But as with anything, it doesn't matter what the law says. It's up to the people have to learn to change and adapt and accept. Right. Right. And we, we talk about that in the film. It's actually, Debbie, the, the reason. Um, so we, I've been developing Thai weddings for a while, and it was a picture on Indian wedding. And then I was in India. I was shooting um, something, uh, a docudrama called Finding Match. And I ran into a heat dress. Uh, Finding Match is a docudrama on cancer. And basically just said, who's your star? And I said, oh, we don't have a star. It's a docudrama. And she goes, well, what is it about? And I said, it's on cancer. And her one line took my breath away. She says, well, why would anyone watch a picture on cancer with no stars? Right? So I was like, wow. Yeah, well, you know, sometimes you just have to tell the stories you have to tell. And she goes, I wish somebody would tell my story. So then she proceeded to tell me about the plight of hijras in India. And I actually, believe it or not, when I decided to incorporate the transgender angle into the film, I actually decided I was going to cast real hijras in the film, which all the hijras in the film are played by real hijras. I actually went looking for her in Mumbai, and I couldn't find her. So then I I just uh, reached out to some hijra communities, and I, I cast real transgenders in the picture. Oh my god! And and the one is an absolute standout. The one that bonds with um, the character of Shania, absolute standout. I yep. mean, but even after getting beaten up in a jail, I mean, the joy and the smile on her face is—it's priceless. It's yep. really priceless. You know, I'm curious. You know, how difficult, how challenging was it for them? knowing, you know, there was going to be this scene that's going to really reflect what can and often does happen to them on the streets? You know, when I, when I decided to cast transgender actors, uh, and they're actually not actors. I, there are no transgender actors in India because I don't even think they're, they are welcomed into many things aside from going and dancing at weddings. Right. But when I decided to uh, cast transgender people in the transgender characters, and so I put the word out, and the next day I had, like, 500 transgender people outside my hotel room. It was the cutest thing ever. Oh, my god! And uh, Sharmila, uh, the, the, the character that you're referring to, when she walked in, and I said to her, so my question for them was, well, why do you want to, why do, you want to do this film? Do you just want to be an actor? Like, what, why do you want to do it? And Sharmila, the girl who, who played, um, is, is played by Sana Mera, she said, you know, I am just so tired of Bollywood making us look like the comic relief. Mm-hmm. And you want to tell a story that is true to our story. And I just 
want to be a part of telling my story honestly. Wow. How can you say mm -hmm. no? How can you say no to that? You can't. I know, right? Wow. But yeah, I mean that that's eye-opening. That aspect of the of five weddings is eye-opening in itself. But then you develop this uh, the whole story of fathers and daughters. Um mothers and sons, true love versus right. arranged marriages, tradition versus contemporary. And of course, being the cancer advocate that you are, uh, you bring in that very lovely, lovely storyline with Bo Derek um, playing Shania's mother. And as we find out later in the film, she is a cancer survivor. And, yep. and yep. you know, you have everything covered in this film. You left no stone unturned. Um, yeah, Debbie, I'll, I'll say this. So, so one of the times when, as I was sort of developing, and, you know, our life changes. I mean, my life in the past 10 years has uh, taken me through two different cancer diagnoses, breast cancer and blood cancer. I'm in full remission from both. But you, you don't walk out of there without a changed person. Mm -hmm. You know, we know that. It, it's, it's a life-changing thing. And so I brought it up with my investors, and I said, you know, I want to add some dimensions to five weddings. And I will never forget one of my investors said to me, yeah, but what would that leave this as a genre? Like, this is a, what would that, and I said, but you know what? Life is not a genre. Life is not comedy or drama or dramedy. Life is everything. Oh, my God. You know, that's when you got to sit there and scratch your head and say, what the heck? Oh, right. Oh, my God. I mean, I think it is absolutely it's wonderful the way it's added in. It builds into the backstory regarding uh, Shania, uh, Shania and her father and why he's yeah. at, and why he's out of the picture. And that's something that I think so many women around the globe can relate to. Uh, when yeah. they, when they have suffered yeah. cancer, especially breast cancer or something, and it has then physically altered them, and yeah. Yeah. So, so to see this unfolding in such a sensitive fashion, it's you know it's really wonderful. You know that's one of the and, thank you, Debbie. I mean that is I mean you you tackle these things, you touch on them, you present them with honesty, sensitivity, but in a very relatable manner. And in an, an overall an entertaining film, um, it's not Thank these you. aren't these aren't dour documentaries or anything like that. This is in a mainstream, quote unquote, rom com. Yes, you know, and you know, and talking about this beautiful rom com, what about your camera movement and your lighting and your lensing from Christo Bakalov? Wow. Thank you. <laughs> you know, India, we've seen we've seen it thanks to Wes Anderson. We've seen it in, in, thanks to Danny Boyle. Um, the beautiful color, the kaleidoscope of color that India gives the world uh, with each region adding something different. How did you and, right. and Cristo go about designing your visual tonal bandwidth here? Because it truly it's celebratory, it's beautiful, it's light, even when you have some underlying darker themes happening. 
So one of the things in in advance that Crystal and I talked about was um, my family is from India. So I've uh, I've been visiting India since I was little from the United States. And one of the things when you get to India, there truly is a very palpable sense of color and sounds and uh, and 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 feels. It's just very and smells and it's very palpable the distinction between India and perhaps landing in New York or landing in Los Angeles. So Crystal and I, from the very get-go, I said to Crystal, we need to, I want to capture the soul of India, the soul of Shania getting to India, which is in some ways, you know, I'm sort of born in, I was born in India, I left India when I was very young, so I'm raised in the United States. And it's sort of that soul of me when I go to India and everything that I feel, and I wanted to capture that. So Crystal and I went into it with a very uh, concise goal, which was to capture the soul of India through the sights and smells and colors of India. Mm -hmm. And we really didn't mess with it that much. We kept it as organic as possible. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, and then you compound on that and you bring in Christopher French's beautiful score. The music in this film is fabulous. The music... Because not only are you giving us the sights, the smells, you're giving us the sounds as well. And, I mean, really, everything, just ma- it's married perfectly here. Did Thank you-, you so much, Debbie. You're too kind. Oh, if it sucked, I would tell you. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but, I mean, this is just, it is, it's wonderful to watch a film like this with thematics like this that is all put together so beautifully. Um, what kind of, what what were you looking for with the music uh, for Christopher to score for the film? Sure. So one of the things that we did was when we went through each of the scenes, Chris and I came up with a great idea where uh, the scenes play, I would close my eyes and Chris would just watch me and I said to him, I would feel the scene. And then he would literally just look at my sort of my emotions, my reactions. And I sort of really got to the scenes just listening to them and just sort of thinking about these scenes. And then he created his score based on the emotions and the feelings he was getting from me as my eyes were closed listening to the vocals of the picture. And um, again, we, um, there's a, um, you know, we, we uh, uh, looked at a lot of Sufi music. Uh, which is S-U-F-I. It's sort of an old Islamic uh, slash uh, Indian, Pakistani type music, Sufi. So we looked at a lot of Sufi undertones. Mm-hmm. Of course, we added some American to it because Shania is from the United States. Mm-hmm. And I think we just kind of made it a really beautiful bridge of American Sufi Indian music. I mean, I think I, I, love, I love the music. I just love the score. Oh, thank you. You know, but I would be remiss not to ask you, talk to you about your casting. You know, I have to give a caveat to all the General Hospital fans out there. You know, everybody complains. They miss Dylan Quartermain. Well, if they want to get a glimpse of Robert Palmer Watkins, see this movie because he's in it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I mean. I'm and wa- he's fantastic. He's such a great guy. Oh, my he he's wonderful, but yeah, everybody has been bemoaning he's gone. He's not on General Hospital, and it's like, where can we see him? Where can we see him? Well, fans, 
Here's where you can see him in five weddings. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You know, I That's mean, right. and how we don't see Candy Clark or Bo Derek. You get both of them in this film. They both are wonderful. They both look amazing. You know, how did you go about casting the film? Especially, you know, with men, with the roles of Mandy and Claudia, and of course, the wonderful Ravi is Donald. And then you've got your two leads. You've got Narjeev uh, Fakri and then Rajkumar Rao. Um, the two of them just explode. Right. So very quickly taking you through the casting. So first of all, Rajkumar Rao just recently has, it is currently in theaters in India right now, but it's India's Bollywood's biggest hit this year. So he's in the what they call the 100 crore club, which I guess would mean the 100 million club, wow. uh, gross profits in the U.S. or something. Um, Nargis is interesting because Nargis is actually half Pakistani and half Czechoslovakian. And of course, not to give away spoilers, but you know how her parents are in the movie. So it was interesting because she pretty much was born Shania Dhaliwal. So when I, uh, I was talking to some American actresses, Believe it or not, one of the ladies we were considering for that role was Ashley Tisdale, who's actually married to Christopher French, the um, the guy who did the score. Mm-hmm. But when I talked to Nargis and I found out about her life, I mean, this role was written for her. So it was mm-hmm. a no-brainer. And then Raj, of course, is Raj. Uh, you know, just brings so much to the table with his emotions and, and his sensitivity. But I have to tell you, the biggest surprise was Bo Derek. And I, I had reached out to Bo. Bo's actually neighbors with uh, Olivia Newton-John, who's a good friend of mine. Mm-hmm. And I had initially reached out to Olivia for the role, but Olivia was doing a tour. And Olivia said, well, what about Bo? She lives next door. So I said, okay, I'll talk to her. So Bo said, send me the script. And I did. And Bo called me and she said, you know, I am very picky and I don't really do that much stuff right now, but I love your script and I'm going to do it. And... So I was very, I was very humbled and honored, Debbie. Wow! And how did you get Candy Clark in this one? Because we don't see much of Candy either. Right. So Candy, same thing. I reached out to Candy because, um, you know, huge fan. Of, of course, I mean, who doesn't love the American Graffiti as a classic? But, uh, but since then, she has done. She has done some other stuff, and I actually was watching something with her, and I thought was just sort of looking, at it and I said, you know what, Candy, Candy would be great in that role. I called her the next morning through her manager. She called me right back. She goes, send me the script. I did. We were pretty much signing her like a day later. Wow. You know, I'm, cur- I'm curious, Namrata, with your films, and particularly with this film, one of the first things as a filmmaker, especially when you're looking at financing and stuff, and it's something that a lot of young filmmakers that I speak with, they never look at this aspect. You've got to decide on your target audience. It's great to make a film just to make a film. But ideally, you want to make a film, get distribution, make money on your film. You need a target audience. Who are you aiming for? What is your process? How do you, did you go about, what was your target audience that you were aiming for sure. with Five Weddings? Sure. Well, look, I think every filmmaker, their first answer to that question is everyone. And I speak at a lot of panels where I say to filmmakers, everyone is great, but everyone is a bonus. So you have to really uh, hone in on your target audience, and then whatever happens after, the everyone is a bonus. So in terms of my target audience, I have three specific target audiences for this picture. One, 
is obviously our South Asians, uh, which we've got a large community of Indians, Pakistanis, Middle Eastern uh, folks living in the United States and Canada. Uh, definitely them. The second is my uh, a new term that I have. It's basically the the target audience of crazy rich Asians, right? Okay. So if every if you enjoyed crazy rich Asians, um, it's sort of that Eastern flavor with weddings, with other stuff going on that's cultural, etc. I think this movie is for you, mm-hmm. definitely. And finally, last but not the least, um, I do believe that there's an element of spirituality to this picture, mm-hmm. which I um, sort of. You know, again, it's, I, I use this term for myself in, in the most complimentary way. I'm very much a yoganista. I love sort of yoga and spirituality and the universe and stuff like that. So I think for me, just really, it's, it's the, the yoganista uh, uh, community, the yoga community, the, the spiritual community in the United States, we're all starting to sort of have that experience now where we're a little bit more spiritual. We're looking at those things. So I think... I think those three in particular would be some very specific target audiences for the picture. Mm-hmm. Now, when you're getting financing for your films, do you actually broach them and say, hey, the, this is what I believe is our target audience? Or do you have investors sitting there saying, well, what about everyone? <laughs> um, well, investors, of course, they do say, what about everyone? Yeah. But I think, like, this is the, uh, Debbie, this is my fourth feature. So I think yeah. it's one of those things where um, my investors have sort of stayed with me through all my pictures, uh, most of them, with the exception of the two that uh, that left after I put the hijras in this one. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, um, look, again, it's a business. So if you don't mind me saying, I mean, I pretty much uh, guarantee my um, investors uh, at least a little ROI mm-hmm. so that if they were to put that money in a bank, uh, you know, they wouldn't have wasted their money. And thankfully, so far, I've been very, very lucky with doing that. Because for me also, if I keep the investors happy, it allows me to make more movies and tell the stories that I want to tell. Mm-hmm. So it's a win-win for everyone. But yes, I, I do not go into it and saying, um, everyone's going to love this picture. Everyone's going to watch this picture. I'm always very particular. Here's our target audience, and here's how we're going to reach them. Mm-hmm. So what what films do you want to make yet? What stories do you want to tell yet that are beating deep within you? Well, the next one that I really, really want to do, so there's two uh, that I'll tell you about right off the bat. There's many, but the two that I'm uh, developing right now, one is a five wedding sequel, but in this one, the the journalist goes around the world. (laughs) Oh! Yeah, yeah. So I think we're going to see China. I think we're going to see Norway. I think we're going to see Germany. We're going to see uh, Brazil. And we're going to see one more. And that's my wedding. So it's a sequel. The other one is, this This is a really important story to me. It's out of Pakistan. And it's uh, there's a situation in, in um, there's a situation that happened with a lady called Mukhtar and Mai where, you know, you're not sort of allowed to have premarital sex. And there was a situation where that happened. And the, the guy who was involved in that, the, the, the punishment was that his sister would be gang-raped by a bunch of people in the village as his, punish, as his punishment. So they got together and gang-raped the sister. And ultimately what happened with that story was that um, nobody w- was, wanted to protect this lady because she was going to be, you know, literally killed. Mm-hmm. And there was one cop 
who said, you know what, I'll take it upon myself to protect her. What do you know, years later, the cop and she fell in love. This is a true story in Pakistan, Aww. and they, they are now married. But I think stories like that from parts of, the, of South Asia, from Pakistan, India, Sri Lanka, Middle East, Bangladesh, where we can, uh, we can share those stories but also make a difference. Yeah. I think I want to tell those stories. And I think there are wonderful stories to tell. And, you know, personally now, now you have teased me, you have taunted me with a five-wedding sequel going around the globe. <laughs> I am just going to be on pins and needles now waiting for that because I just love this one so much that yeah, I want... Thanks, Duffy. I mean, as, when it ended, it's like I wanted more. I didn't want to see it end. Oh. I wanted more because it it was such... A fun ride, even though you have those serious theme underlying themes within the film, it's still it's so entertaining and you know it, and it's enlightening as you're watching it. You're having fun and you're being enlightened at the same time, and you can't beat that for my money. Oh, thank you, Doug. Uh, Namrata, this has been such a joy to have you on the show today. I seriously can't wait to see what you do next, and you have to come back on the show to talk more about some of your it films. It would be my great pleasure. Uh, and everybody now... Deb, I, five Deb I just want to say really quick, the, the release date for the picture has just been pushed to the 26th of October in the U.S. and Canada. So just please go to fiveweddingsmovie.com. We're going to be posting the new uh, release theaters and everything. And would love people's support to come watch the film I, on 26th October. And that's what I was just going to ask you, because I knew the release date got pushed, but I wasn't sure till when. So you beat me to the punch. <laughs> uh, well, maybe we'll have to have you back on the show closer to October 26th to remind everybody about how good this film is. I'd love that. Oh, so would I. Namrata, thank you so, so much. And I'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Debbie. Thanks to all your listeners, and thank you. Bye-bye. Bye, Deb. And that was Namrata Singh Gujral, Five Weddings. And as she said, yes, the film release date has just been pushed to October 26th. So we're going to see if we can get uh, Namrata to come back and do a quickie. Uh, around then to talk, remind everybody about the film. But right now, you can see a letter from Masanja by Leon Lee, an incredible, incredible story and documentary. Very powerful. Can't recommend it highly enough. And Ama Asante's Where Hands Touch. Uh, and you'll get more of my, my exclusive with Ama on BehindTheLensOnline.net later this week after LA Film Festival starts. So, that's all the time we have today. We're totally booked up next week with some wonderful talent again. So until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.